Coming up on this week's show, we talk through how too much automation can sometimes be a bad thing. Chris has a mini Home Assistant freakout and continues to collect Raspberry Pis at, frankly, an alarming rate. I'm Alex. I'm Chris. And this is Self Hosted 19. I bought another Raspberry Pi 4. Uh-oh. Yeah. I I just wanted a test rig that I could do some experiments with without affecting my production Raspberry Pis. You know, the, the number on the end of the model name is not the number you're supposed to own. <laughs> Good, because I think I've, I think this is my sixth, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> your sixth Raspberry Pi 4? I think it might be. Oh, dude, you have a problem. The self-hosted Discord. I blame them. They've been asking me questions, and I was like, you know, I want to test this for these guys, but I don't want to do it on my production system. So it's their fault. Production. Oh, you're so cute. <laughs> and No, it is. They're server-grade pies, and don't, don't you uh, forget it. Mmm, sound delicious. Server-grade pies. That should be the title right there. Does sound delicious. The thing that the Discord's been asking me is, once you move your system over to the USB SSD, that's kind of a funny saying, a lot of acronyms there, but once you move over to that SSD that's on USB uh, and you boot from it, is the SD card still required? This is a frequent question that's come in because the performance improvements by doing this, where you you take the Raspberry Pi 4 image for, say, like Ubuntu 2004, and then you flash that to a USB SSD drive, like you would an SD card, you can actually boot from that. But after some testing today with this new Raspberry Pi, uh, I realized you absolutely still have to have, in this current setup, the SD card in there to load the kernel. So the SD card is just necessary for the very, very early stages of the boot process. Once the kernel is loaded, it switches over to your external SSD drive, and everything runs from that. And you, in theory, could probably remove the SD card. Yeah, slash boot has to remain on the uh, SD card. You can work around that with a Pixie boot if you want to. So you could network boot the Pies completely SD cardless if you really wanted to. So another option. Yeah. I mean, I find it to be a pretty good compromise though, Alex, because it's only using the SD card for a very short amount of time when the system's booting. And then after that, it doesn't even touch it. It's not making any rights to it unless you're doing kernel upgrades. So I guess the only time at which you'd be at risk is when you're actually writing data to the SD card of it of it failing. Yeah, and that's such a simple setup that it's no problem to just DD that to another SD card as a hot standby every now and then. And it doesn't need to be a big one. So how do you go about migrating the root file system from the SD card to the SSD? Is it rsync or, or what? How do you do it? No, it's even simpler. You just write the image that you would have written to the SD card to the USB drive, to the SSD. What happens if the kernel gets out of sync with what's in slash boot and what's on the image? This is where you have to take careful uh, precautions to mount the right boot and have that so you're updating the right slash boot. Okay, that makes sense. Once it's done, you get pretty spectacular performance, about the best performance you're going to get on a Raspberry Pi 4 without overclocking it. They are the little boxes that can. I I've mentioned it before, my uh, 3D printer has been running a Pi 3B plus for the last year plus just works and it's been running from an sd card so i really shouldn't worry too much about deploying to production with an sd card but uh, the right performance from an ssd is pretty great um it's hard to argue with that now uh home assistant should we should we talk about that and and the drama this week yeah because this honestly would invalidate my entire setup if this had gone through i really took this hard when they announced that they were deprecating the supervised mode of home assistant on generic linux 
Well, before we get to explaining the the nitty gritty of supervised and everything else, I think it's worth stating that Home Assistant lately have been on somewhat of a crusade to change things and do rebranding, kind of redefining their relationship as a project with the community. We had a few weeks ago a situation where they were doing a bunch of stuff around YAML in the UI, um, kind of taking away or abstracting away a lot of the YAML controls into just click-click UI-based stuff. And then that led to a whole series of blog posts and an episode of the Home Assistant podcast dedicated to it. And now we have this. So I don't know, there's a few things happened and let's break it down. So you have Home Assistant, which is a combination of Home Assistant Core and Supervised D, which manages a lot of things for Home Assistant, keeps it up to date, allows you to take snapshots, it allows you to install add-ons. We've talked about that on the show before. That's Home Assistant. Home Assistant Core is just the base functional part of Home Assistant. You can get that as a Docker image on any Linux box today. And then you have the whole OS that they provide as an image that you can deploy to Raspberry Pis or in a VM. And the bit that they were deprecating, which they have now revised their plans, but when announced, the bit they were deprecating was the ability to install the overall Home Assistant package that includes Core and Supervised D on any Linux box. If you wanted Home Assistant on Linux, you could only get the Core version. No plugins, no themes, no community add-ons, no Supervised D to do the backups and the updates. Just the Docker image of just the Core Python application. Or you had to grab their pre-built image that includes an entire Linux OS. I think one of the things that wound me up a little bit about this announcement wasn't the announcement itself, because open source projects are generally created by people volunteering their time. And if the project goes in a way I don't like, then I'm perfectly within my rights to fork it. But this time, Home Assistant is turning into a company. So we've got this Nabu Casa company who have been founded in the last year. They've hired a few people, Frank being one of them, Paulus, uh, you know, the founder of Home Assistant is another. There's, there's a few other st- actual staff working on Home Assistant now. And so it's kind of going through growing pains of transitioning from a free and open source project entirely built off voluntary, you know, time donations to being almost like a pseudo product in a way. One of the key arguments in the blog post was developers' health. And there was a line in there which just rubbed me up the wrong way. I know that this blog post will make a subset of our community angry. There are people that think they deserve other people's work, even if it costs them their health. You're wrong. Just as with our recent decision to limit the usage of YAML in some cases, Home Assistant will keep choosing health over features. Open source is not about us having to support every feature anyone on the internet can think of open source means that anyone can do that themselves and choose to share this or not now that paragraph with the you're wrong section has since been removed from the blog post entirely and for me that's kind of a tacit you know a tacit agreement that yeah okay perhaps we were a bit almost rude in that one Hmm, it feels like it's coming from a place of burnout doesn't it yeah and and there was a comment uh was it, this was on Reddit. I mean, there was a huge, huge number of comments on, on Reddit about this, uh, saying that users are basically coming from a place of entitlement. But actually, if you think about it, the developers 
saying that the users are entitled is itself an entitled position. And I find it interesting how this happens with open source all the time, that as as project gains traction, the reason that it gained popularity was because it is what it was. And then if you take things away from it, it no longer is what it was. So of course people are going to be upset because they've built their lives around this thing. We're both, Chris and I, are feeling a bit locked in to Home Assistant these days. All right, well, let's zoom in on this for a moment because what I find interesting here is you have the burnout, you have the entitlement story that's quite common in the open source world, and then you also have this mismatch with user expectations. And in this case, which is not always true in these situations, but in this case, the end users might be right. From a security standpoint, I think you could make a pretty solid argument that if you have experienced system administrators who are deploying common operating systems with multiple years of support and a standardized way to patch and monitor the vulnerabilities on those systems, those are probably likely more secure than Home Assistant's custom-built OS, no matter how minimal it is. Because the reality is, a group like Canonical or Red Hat has entire teams of engineers just dedicated to building a production-grade operating system. Nebukasa has a couple of guys who are making a massive, huge project that needs an OS to run on top of. The OS isn't their primary focus. As a longtime system administrator who runs all of my own systems now, I don't want to run somebody else's operating system. I want to run what is my standard deployment that I know how to maintain, patch, reproduce, backup, restore, etc. I don't want somebody else's custom OS. I want that kind of stuff out of my infrastructure as much as possible, actually. So there was a mismatch with what the end users wanted and expected, and potentially what looks like might be the widely deployed scenario versus what the developers want, perhaps from a product standpoint and simplified development perspective. And I think this is a classic mismatch that we have here, only this time it's really complicated because it does mean that Home Assistant was nearly about to make a change that would completely invalidate my setup. And I had one of those moments where I felt just as locked in to Home Assistant as I would any other cloud service or any kind of smart things central hub that has a subscription or has a license. I felt caught in a trap because I was being told that my setup was deprecated and there were no plans to support it. And sorry, if you want to keep running it on your own OS, then you better switch back to core, which listeners of this show will note, I just migrated from. So the timing on this was horrible. And I realized, well, I've just done it again. Only this time I've spent all the money on the hardware. I've spent all the hours setting it up myself. And now I'm just as locked in. What's wrong with them saying in that scenario, sorry, Chris, we're not going to support you. We'll still leave supervisor there. We'll still maintain it. But if you get into a situation that you can't fix, well, you're on your own. I mean, that's kind of the Linux way, isn't it? I think there is a scenario where they would set a timeline, a 90-day window or something, where they would inform users that at this point, this will no longer be a supported deployment methodology. And in that 90-day period, there would be a call to action to create documentation to help users because that was, I think, the thing that really pushed this over the edge and made them roll this back is they realized very quickly there was a massive lack in documentation to actually support the way they were telling people to deploy it now. And the user base was rightfully upset about that. You just told me to go use this new method, and the documentation is out of date and wrong in some cases. 
And so they had to reverse course. But I think if you had set a timeline, maybe it could be as short as 90 days. If you had made a good case for it, maybe had a call for support, because again, this is an open source project and people don't know to help until you ask for it. As silly as that sounds to the people making it, the consumers of the product are not aware of the day-to-day strife. They don't know where help is needed unless you tell them. That's why whenever we have developers on this show or our other shows, we always say, how can people help? They don't know. So communicating that initially, even before it came to this, if you were to rewind the clock, would be the first step, then setting a timeline to migration, and then updating the docs and improving them in the short term. If you have to make the change, there is a way to do it. I still wouldn't have been thrilled, but it wouldn't have been this immediate pulling the rug out from underneath me saying it's already deprecated as of this post. And so who are these changes aimed at? It feels to me like Home Assistant's trying to pivot into this noob-friendly, new user, mythical new Linux user, um, friendly product. Who are these people? Yeah, deployed on your Pi. It seems like they're targeting the people that have bought small board computers, or perhaps they are targeting a product themselves. That was a sense I got from this, is maybe if, if they're going to make a home assistant hardware device one day, it will need its own OS. And so if they're going to work towards that, that would be a logical focus of their resources. This is a point I made in the Linux Spotlight that I did with Rocco. I think more people come to Linux these days through headless server apps like Home Assistant or Plex and whatever than they actually do through the desktop. Uh, Linux is dominant on the server side and it feels to me like Home Assistant is leveraging that kind of Linux ecosystem to get them off the ground and they've built up this reputation now and they're trying to abstract away a lot of stuff that made it great you know declarative configuration through yaml files uh, is being abstracted away a little bit to you know the ui and with this supervised d change okay it's been rolled back but it just feels like another screw that's being turned to make it a black box an appliance that can be productized yeah it could go that way i hope not because i think your analysis is correct a lot of early adopters of Home Assistant, pip installed it because it was a pip install away. And then the next wave came and it was Docker users that installed the containers. And and now I think the area they're focused on, like their some of their primary developers even for their main Home Assistant setups are using things like the Odroid or Raspberry Pis. Or they're recommending people go buy a NUC and deploy their image on it. Yeah, so it's a worrying time for the Home Assistant project in general. I don't know what this means for the future, because officially nothing's changed at this point. But you've got to imagine that something somewhere is going to give at some point. And whether it's the developer's health being used as an excuse, I'm not saying that people should work themselves into the ground for my benefit, you know, for for free. But at some point, you know, I'm paying Nabucasa five bucks a month. I've submitted a couple of pull requests to Home Assistant I've been on their podcast and I've still got told by people on Reddit that I didn't qualify to have an opinion. You know, so at what point do the users qualify for that opinion? You know, it's, it, I'm just worried. It's a red flag for me that maybe all is not well at the head of the project. I think it is a red flag. However, that flag is maybe not quite as bright red because they, they did dial it back, which means they're listening. And that's a good sign. It's more sort of burnt sienna now. Right, exactly. (laughs) And that feels like, okay, there's room for negotiation here. And I think that's important because the community around Home Assistant, especially when it comes to integrations and whatnot, is super important. 
And building that up in a competitor will take, I mean, how long has Home Assistant been around? Years. It, it would take just as long, I think. So long live Home Assistant. <laughs> yeah. Although I'm sure people, and, and actually we welcome, jump in the Discord at selfhosted.show slash Discord, or send us an email at selfhosted.show slash contact. Are you using something besides Home Assistant and how do you like it? Because there's commercial products out there. There's other open source projects. I'd like to hear from you. Now, in the last episode, I promised you a reverse proxy roundup. I don't have one for you today, but what I do have is a plug for the latest episode of TechSnap. That's episode 429 at techsnap.systems slash 429. Yeah, in the meantime, since our last episode, Wes and Jim did a pretty nice overview. They were talking about Caddy, which just dropped version 2 recently. I've taken a little look at it, and I had a bit of a, you know, a Twitter exchange with a developer. I'll keep my opinion to myself on that one for now. Um, I don't think I'll be switching away from my beloved Nginx quite yet, though. I'm still trying to get you to switch to traffic, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah. And talking of the Discord, uh, I want to give a quick shout out to user Anther76. He has been really helpful in helping me figure out how to get past the host mode problem that I talked about in last episode with traffic. So there's a couple of lines you can add to your config of the traffic container, which is extra underscore hosts, and then you put in the IP address of your Docker network. And then by doing that, you can run Plex in host mode and use traffic as a full reverse proxy. Uh, There is an example, which I'll have a link to in the show notes in my infrastructure GitHub repo uh, of my example Docker Compose file that I'm just using to test stuff. So if you're curious, take a look in the show notes. And I just mentioned those contact methods. Those are also perfectly viable if you want us to go more into reverse proxies just let us know we're just waiting for you to ask selfhosted.show slash contact in the meantime though you didn't have a chance to play with something else and they build themselves as your quote offline first privacy-centric personal data center home lab os so this is an interesting one home lab os proposes to be my favorite project of the year if you think about all the technologies that are involved here it's using linux It's using Ansible, it's written and configured in YAML, and it deploys lots of Docker containers and WireGuard, and magic happens. Yeah, and it claims over 100 click-deploy services, easy backup and restores, and it will automatically publish it all on Tor hidden services, so you basically don't need to worry about port forwarding as long as you got Tor. And you get the whole thing up and running with one line deployment. I mean, this is like everything that would be checking your boxes. <laughs> it largely does, to be fair. I mean, what are we talking here? Is it a script that you run on top of Linux? It's a framework, I suppose, is the best way I can think of to describe it. And largely speaking, that's my issue with it. It's using Terraform under the hood to create a Bastion server to make the magic happen about having a a remote endpoint that you can target and a Bastion server, if you're familiar with that concept. It's something that you would connect to that is open to the internet without being your main box. So it's like a jump host is another word for it you might hear. So you wouldn't connect directly to your server running on your LAN. You'd go through the bastion, which then your firewall knows what the public IP address of that is. So you can limit internet-facing traffic to a very specific place. Um, so in terms of security and, and basic you know, protocols like that, it's a, it's a good thing to have. And it's pretty common in industry. And what's clear is that the developer of this project, Nick Busey, he really knows what he's doing. You know, I spent a good couple of days digging through the code here, and he's using Ginger templating to template out all of the Docker Compose YAML files and 
it's really, you know, must have been a lot of work to get to this point, and it supports hundreds of applications. But the trouble is, it wasn't invented here. And I don't mean that as a necessarily a bad thing, but it's so complicated. Even though I've spent months working as a consultant on Ansible code bases, I, it took me a good few hours to get my head around just what this thing was doing under the hood. Now, maybe that's not the point of this thing. Maybe I should just run the one line deploy and just go with it. But I like to know what things are doing under the hood. And it's so complicated and so abstracted away from what's actually happening under the hood that in the end, I ended up kind of being a bit turned off from it, sadly. That was my impression as well. So that's interesting because I thought we were going to have two different views on this. <laughs> I don't need all of this. And I've kind of solved this in its own way for each one of these using, you know, duplicati and others, other just backup systems and having Docker containers where I've just hand deployed a handful of applications and I just manage it all from compose files. I don't particularly need this anymore. But I, I do see it for somebody who is curious, like, hey, I got this box. I've heard about this Linux thing. I'll throw this Ubuntu on here and see how far I can get at replicating what I use the cloud for. I'll tell you where this thing, I think, actually is the most useful. It's for examples. It's for showing what's possible with automation and getting people involved in infrastructure as code and committing all of those configuration files to a git repository somewhere and so that when you're trying to do some kind of a, a server rebuild or you know to save yourself writing bash scripts which you know may or may not work you're using ansible which is battle tested by red hat and millions of customers across the world a lot of stuff that's in here is industry standard stuff so if you can start looking at this sort of code base and understanding it and figuring out what it's doing then you know you're pretty well set for a you know a DevOps job. It's a good point. And it's a good example of what can be done. I mean, it's pretty neat to see something like this that's not just the crazy like bash scripts or PHP command line scripts that are running, but it's actual, well, I mean, it's a combination of bash scripts, but it's actual best practices being applied to assemble these systems for you. It's kind of neat to watch it. I've seen simpler code bases as part of government projects. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, it's not a great learning tool in that sense. That said, the developer behind it, Nick, is a great guy. He hangs out on our Discord, and he quite often does Twitch live streams and stuff like that. And uh, he's very open to feedback and stuff like that. I would say, in general, he's a, a bit of a Steve Wozniak looking for a jobs. If you're, you know, willing to put some spit and polish and make it a little more uh, consumable for mortals, then you know, I think that's going to take the project to the next level. But for now, it's a bit much for me. I'll tell you what, though, I've made this point before on other shows, but I think it's something that's worth repeating is you do need projects like this to showcase open source and get it up and running because the barrier to running things like Nextcloud or your own mail server or a hosted Bitwarden installation, etc., is sometimes you don't even know the fundamentals to install software on a Linux box. And you don't know if it's worth it to learn. And so when you can one-line deploy something and then have a UI to go through and deploy applications and then experience things like setting up your own syncing or your own mail server, it can be a big motivator to learn and to go on a journey. You were touching on it, like it's a validation or it's a, it's a way to prove out something before you begin a journey. And open source software, there's such a need for showcasing like that. So I like it from that standpoint too. I think what I'd like to see really with this type of project is to separate out the constituent components into building blocks. So let's say I want to generate a Docker Compose file from 
you know, a, a YAML dictionary full of different variables, for example. Um, so I don't have to keep typing in the paths that I'm using, you know, for the Docker volumes or, you know, I don't want to expose my port numbers in my Git repo or whatever so I can encrypt this kind of stuff, right? Right, yeah, yep. If Home Lab OS was a series of, let's say, Ansible roles that you could consume and reuse different building blocks of that were written in a very generic, non-opinionated fashion, then I think this thing has huge, huge potential. But as it stands, I think the fact that it's got such strong opinions on the way things is done is great for it, but it means that it's very limited in terms of other use cases. But a cool project, and I definitely recommend trying it. You know, even if you just throw it in a VM for a bit. But uh, Home Lab OS, we'll have a link in the show notes. I'm sorry I wasn't very nice, Nick, but I do like the project. Promise. <laughs> Great job, though. I mean, if this is the work of a single individual, it makes me feel like I have not accomplished much in life. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> what have you been doing with your life, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Too many road trips, I guess. Or too many installations of Ubuntu 2004. So you and I both had a very different experience with remote installations this week of Ubuntu 2004. Mine was really kind of tame. Flashed an image, threw that image on a headless box, waited for the DHCP server to issue a new lease. And then I just grabbed that IP from the log, SSH'd into it, and began my setup. And I was in a nice, comfy SSH session, can't complain. I think your experience was a little different, though. Before I emigrated, I made some plans with, you know, different servers and stuff like that. And I managed to convince my dad to leave my old server in his house. It's in a fractal define R5 case. The motherboard that's in there is an X8 super micro something. The Xeon chip that's in there is a V1. So it's, it's quite old. It's only got 16 gigs of RAM. And it's really just designed to be a remote endpoint for my storage. So I had about 50 terabytes worth of storage in my server in the UK before I left. So I just left it all there and bought new drives when I came here. You know, it's got, it's got I think, like five or maybe four eight terabyte drives and a couple of six terabyte drives. No SMR drives. I did check <laughs> after the drama lately. Yeah, you never know. They might sneak in. That's a, a TechSnap reference. And before I emigrated, as I just said, I, I left this at my dad's house. I installed Debian on it and it's been working absolutely flawlessly. But recently I decided to start investigating WireGuard and then thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if I could do some of the ZFS send and receive stuff that Jim and Alan Jude keep talking about? So then I started having to install DKMS modules on Debian and this was, I don't know, a couple of months ago. And for some reason last night, Apt was just getting its knickers in a complete twist. The DKMS stuff was just not working i couldn't fix it and in the end i thought to myself you know what would solve all of my problems just going from debian 9 to ubuntu 2004 which of course there's no direct upgrade path you can't that's nothing you're going to be able to do no you have to wipe and start from scratch <laughs> and this is in london right this box is in, in a closet in my dad's house at <laughs> okay, 2 a.m right. British time. So it's quite high stakes game of uh, poker here. Did you consider not going with WireGuard? No. <laughs> no, of course not. Of course not. So I'm running PFSense uh, as the firewall at his house. So I've got an open VPN tunnel. I mostly use to stream iPlayer because iPlayer requires a residential IP block 
So if you try and go through DigitalOcean or something like that, they know that those IPs aren't residential, so it won't work. So you have to go through, you know, like a parent's house or something like that. Uh, it works great for us. But so I connected through OpenVPN from a crusty old Windows VM that's running Java 8 to the IKVM IPMI Java interface. Oh, boy. I then downloaded the ISO to the VM that was running in my basement here, mounted remotely the Ubuntu ISO into the you know virtual storage media manager that's part of this uh, IPMI client. It then took about 25 minutes to boot. So I just got to visualize all of this. So first of all, it's like one of the worst interfaces ever created on the planet, right? For the IPKVM, I'm assuming. Yeah, it's about three frames per second, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right, so are you on your desktop and you're accessing the ASXi console where inside there you're remotely viewing a Windows VM which is remotely running this Java IPKVM? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that sounds really horrible. It's pretty inception, isn't it? <laughs> it's pretty inception. I'm running Windows on ESXi, accessing Windows through Firefox in a browser session, uh-huh. accessing the console output of my server in England through a Java client, mounting an Ubuntu ISO through the Virtual Media Manager. And somehow I managed to get booted into the ISO on the third try. It was quite fun because my upload here is only 30 meg, which is, you know, it's still reasonable for cable, but it's not the gigabit that I had last year. And it was just absolutely pegging at 30 meg the entire upload whilst it booted the ISO, which I found really interesting. But it worked. Now, did you go with the server ISO or did you go with the net? I went with the server ISO and I think that was critical to my success. There was no clicking required. I could just press one button on the keyboard, wait for the latency to catch up, and then press the next arrow button or press the next tab, wait for that keystroke to actually occur and update and refresh, and then move on to the next one. I think if you're trying to do this with an actual UI, you might struggle. Right. That would be horrible with the GUI. And then you also get to take advantage of some of the server's other features during the installation. Yeah, I mean, the installation of Ubuntu itself was relatively uneventful uh, until I got to the point where it asked me if I wanted to import my SSH keys, and then my mind exploded. So this is something I've relied on Ansible to do for years. I keep all of my SSH keys up to date on GitHub, and then I use the authorized keys module to import all of my GitHub public keys onto specific hosts. But there's a new command I learned about called ssh-import-id, which will do the same damn thing for you. Isn't that great? And to make it even better, they've built it into the Ubuntu server installer. So all I type in is my GitHub username, press go, and then the cloud init file that it generates imports all of the SSH keys from GitHub that I have. So then I'm kind of curious, did you use ZFS for the entire thing or did you do extended four on the root OS and ZFS on the data drives? Like what's the approach here? Because I, I assume there must have been a pool already existing that you were hoping you could reconnect to once the installation was done. I just made a very simple mirror of the two six terabyte SSDs that I had in that box and then used that as my ZFS volume. I did install root on ext4. I didn't see an option exposed in the server installer for ZFS on root, so I didn't think to do that. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Well, very interesting, and I suppose now you've been able to play around with some of the ZFS send and receive things that you were initially attempting to get to? (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I've now got WireGuard configured not to connect through the PFSense firewall. It's a point-to-point, you know, my media VM connects directly to the server that runs in my dad's house, you know, through WireGuard. So it's a point-to-point tunnel. And now ZFS send and receive will work over that tunnel. So I started using Jim Salter's Sanoid tool and Syncoid tool uh, to manage not only the snapshots uh, in terms of like a configurable hourly, daily, monthly, weekly type situation, but also to send them as well. So one of the really cool things about ZFS that's blowing my mind a little bit is that I can send data from one server and it will arrive in the same exact layout on the other server. That doesn't sound amazing until you realize that includes all the data sets, all the permissions, all of the snapshot history, all of the ACLs, every single parameter that is attached to those files in America is now attached to those files in England. Right, and your file system is doing this. It's not some daemon you're running in the background like rsync or something that's like me. I use sync thing to move stuff around between my boxes, but this is being managed at a file system block level. Yeah, I've always kind of scoffed a a little bit at the hidden cost of ZFS, you know, that you have to set pools up up front and that the penalty for getting it wrong you know let's say you set your a shift wrong for example or something like that so your partitions don't quite match the cylinders on the disc and stuff the penalties are quite high but i tell you what when it works it's amazing it's cheaper than glassier too i think doing it this way yeah if you have a place to send it to for sure I have this hybrid setup where at the studio, I have this big super micro box that has the ZFS array where everything is ultimately stored. But then in my mobile RV setup, I have a pool of XFS for the storage drives and extended for for the OS and SD cards because I just want as minimal overhead as possible on those boxes. And then I use Sync Thing and Duplicati and other tools to move data around and just sort of negate the benefits of ZFS in the mobile setup. But I find that user space tools, you know, they work for me. They move data fine. Backup happens. I have snapshots. It's all fine. It's just not as tight and integrated into the file system as it could be. But here at the studio, I do take advantage of that. So I kind of have been enjoying the differences of these setups because there's things I like about both of them. And I think they're both pretty valid. It just sort of, I think it is worth the time to investigate. If you keep hearing people talk about it a lot, they just did a really good ButterFS compared to ZFS Roundup on two and a half admins. And I think that's worth checking out too, if you're curious about that, because there's a lot of trade-offs there as well. And it really comes down to the workload. But if you haven't tried it, like Alex is saying, it's so easy to do now. It's so easy to just give it a go. Yeah, that's over at 2.5admins.com with uh, Alan Jude, Jim Salter, and the beloved Joe Ressington. But of course, uh, I just run APFS on everything. (laughs) You madman. (laughs) Now, it's not like ZFS has completely replaced everything on my file servers. Media, you know, like movies and TV shows and that kind of stuff, stuff that's easily replaced is still being handled by MergerFS. What I'm using ZFS for is stuff that's irreplaceable. So I'm talking like photos, drone footage. Also, I'm using it for container app data. So I have a different data set for each container that I'm using. And then that way, before I make a change to the configuration of a particular app or something like that, I have a snapshot now that gets taken with uh, Sanoid. If I screw up the configuration change, I can just roll back to the previous snapshot and I'm good to go. There's lots and lots of different 
things that you can do when you're using ZFS and the checksumming and, you know, the data integrity checks that it, it does for me on stuff like photos and, and music that I've ripped from my CDs I don't physically own anymore, stuff like that. It's just I, w- I want to take every precaution I can with that stuff. So one thing I have yet to implement and I'm going to look into something, I'm curious, Alex, if you have any advice, is I still would like to have checksums as well because that's something ZFS offers when you talk about bit rot. Really what you're talking about, especially with spinning media, but I suppose theoretically possible with solid state, is a failure of a block over time or an area of the disk that becomes unreliable and the things you stored there are lost. And that's something that you have to check against if you're using spinning media, but I think it's worth checking against with solid state as well. And that's something ZFS includes. XFS and ButterFS and other file systems include checksumming for the metadata. So they sometimes are labeled as checksummed file systems, but they're not actually checksumming at the block level at at each individual app file all the way down the file system tree. They're just checking the metadata head, which is nice, but isn't going to tell you the entire picture. Well, before I moved to ZFS last year, this was after Linux Fest Northwest, actually. Alan and Jim were very persuasive. I actually been using SnapRaid, and I still do use SnapRaid, and that does do checksumming every day for me on my movies and TV shows. And that is snapshot parity calculation, so it knows when stuff has changed. I, I'm never super 100% convinced it's as effective ZFS, I've not really got any way to check or any real way to know. Because if if the bit changes overnight, well, when I run the snap rate sync the next day, it'll go, oh, that bit's changed. I'll just recalculate that bit of parity, no? So I I don't know if that's how it would work or or whatever, but snap rate does claim to do that. Yeah, okay. I remember you talking about snap rate, and it's something I've been meaning to try. I also, I know in the past, I've come across tools like MD5Deep and HashDeep, which will go through, they'll crawl your whole file system, generate checksums, and then they can check against that. But hit those contact links or uh, the Discord and let me know what you use. I would like something that I could cron or get some kind of output that would run every night on these pies, but isn't going to totally abuse the disk I.O. And, and, and the CPUs. So if you have any suggestions, let me know. And if you're doing those jobs on cron, you should check out healthchecks.io. You can self-host that as a container, and that will let you check in with curl every night and send you an email if that cron job fails. You're going to get me to use health checks one of these days. <laughs> you're right. I think I'm heading down that path. I like it. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Everything we talked about is at selfhosted.show slash 19. 